I would ask that you would turn your Bibles to the New Testament and turn to the book of Titus. We've been in a series uh, that we have entitled Setting Us Straight, and we are coming to the end of that series. In fact, uh, next week will be the last week that we'll be in the, uh, in the study, and we're looking forward to uh, uh, what God will be teaching us as we move to the Old Testament in a couple weeks. But uh, we don't want to move too quickly uh, to that until we have finished up uh, the job that is before us, and that is finishing up the book of Titus. It's my hope and prayer uh, that you've been blessed and that you've been challenged by the teaching of this incredible book. I'm not sure about you, uh, but I know for me, uh, going into Titus, uh, it was a short book, and I knew there were some important themes that we would address, but never did I think that we'd be able to pull so much out of such a short uh, little letter that was written some 2,000 years ago, and I've been amazed at what the wonderful truths that God has taught me as I've uh, studied and as I've uh, proclaimed the truths of, of this incredible letter uh, to you. I hope and pray that you're leaving this book as a changed uh, people, uh, that you are beginning to think about how you can become more eager to do what is good as is articulated in this wonderful letter. Now, as we begin to close, if you will, as we make our final approach to the close of this book, Paul shares a couple words of instruction and warning to us. He loves the churches that are on the island of Crete. He loves his young disciple, Titus, and he wants to share some words of warning after three now chapters of articulating the importance of sound doctrine and the understanding of what a church is to be and what it is to do. He understands that there is a temptation to stray away from the truth, to become distracted, to turn on each other and become divided. And Paul uses some of these last words to speak to uh, the concern that he has surrounding these issues. I'd like to think that what Paul is doing is he's giving us a warning to stay out of what I would like to call the danger zone. Many of you know that my, uh, my, I don't have a sole job of pastoring, but for the last about 15 years, I've, I've had the wonderful privilege of uh, managing my family's catering business. And amidst all the responsibilities that I have in managing that business, uh, one of them is, is that I have to be uh, uh, apt in my understanding of food safety. And I know that this won't uh, spark great interest in a lot of you, but it may be helpful for many of you that when you talk about food safety, when you go and you are a part of classes to recertify your license, they will tell you over and over again that the number one rule in food preparation and food safety is making sure food is kept at a proper temperature. The Board of Health will tell you uh, that the proper temperature uh, is either going to be uh, below 40 degrees or above 140 degrees. And anything in between 40 and 140 is what they call the danger zone. The reason why is that food that is left out uh, and, and is at that temperature of 40 to 140 is found to be multiplying bacteria at an exponential rate. And so you either want to keep food colder or you want to make sure the food is hotter than those, uh, uh, than those temperatures. As a result of that, we recognize and know that when bacteria comes into food, and I know this is going to make you all happy after you uh, leave here and go have lunch, that if your food is not kept at that temperature for a long period of time, bacteria grows and multiplies, and where there is bacteria, there is foodborne illnesses. And all of you, I'm sure, have had at one time or another uh, the wonderful symptoms of that, uh, of that uh, result of staying uh, inside the danger zone too long. 
We don't want to do that. And so what the food uh, group will tell us is, is that we need to be checking temperatures at all times. And I will tell you, it is not a very fun job uh, to keep track of food temperatures. There's nothing wonderful about it. There's nothing glamorous about it, but it needs to be done. I'd like to tell you this morning that the text that we're going to be looking at is a lot like that for us as food handlers. It is a reminder to be checking the temperature because we as Christians, we as a church, just like with food, can fall into what Paul is calling the danger zone. And that is that zone as a church where we become distracted, where we become divided. And as a result of uh, of allowing ourselves to sit in that danger zone too long, problems, troubles, and trials for a church in the life of the Christian begin to multiply at an exponential rate. And so Paul, as he's closing out this book, says, beware of this danger zone, stay out of it, and make sure you're constantly checking your spiritual temperature to make sure you are not falling or straying into that danger zone without knowing it. And that's what our text is all about this morning. It is a reminder. It is nothing flashy. There is not a lot of incredible stories of application in regards to it, but just a reminder for us as Christians to stay out of the proverbial danger zone as Christ followers. So let's look at what Titus is told by Paul in Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 8, and we'll look through verse 11. I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word. And let's look what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. He says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you. And Father, I pray that we would uh, focus our hearts and minds this morning on this passage before us. Lord, I know the details of the day may have us thinking beyond our time in your word, but Lord... As we are reminded today, part of the issue of us falling to danger is by being distracted. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see only you today. Give us hearts that only yearn to be like you so that we may not be distracted by the things of this world. And, Father, I also pray that as we have been challenged, Lord, we recognize that in churches, even in our church Here today, Lord, we can fall prey to the issue of division. And so, Lord, I pray that we would heed the words of Paul, how to deal with divisive people, how to love them, how to challenge them, and how to bring them back to the fold. And, Lord, how to recognize if we, too, are being divisive. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, use this time to speak to our hearts and our minds. We give you the glory and praise for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul has spent the last three chapters of this letter teaching Titus and the churches on the island of Crete to establish a church that is established and founded in regards with its foundation, excuse me, with sound doctrine. 
He says over and over again the importance of teaching and declaring the truth of Scripture. Now, the reason why is because Paul recognizes that in the life of Christ, we can so easily become distracted by the things of this world. And so as he closes out this letter, he wants to remind the people in Crete of the risk of falling, of falling to the devil's schemes, of falling to the world's entrapments and lures of its desires. And so what Paul tells Titus in the church is, be careful. Be warned of the subtle enemies that fight against God's commands. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul has articulated this. He articulates it in four other New Testament uh, books, the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of Philippians, uh, the book of First and Second uh, Timothy as well. And he addresses this issue of mindless chatter, worthless genealogies, and how they distract people from the truth and how they can divide the church that is supposed to be unified under the banner of Christ. And so he gives us two areas that we need to be careful of. Now notice the first area that we enter into the danger zone is when the Christian is distracted. When the Christian is distracted. Paul recognizes, and we must recognize this morning, that we can become distracted as Christians. For many of us here, we live with spiritual ADD, Attention deficit disorder. You and I have every intention of following Christ. Every intention of pursuing the life of holiness. And we get up and we have the right uh, desire to live our lives just as Christ has called us to. But sometime between when we wake up and when we put our heads back on the pillow that night, uh, we find ourselves that we have veered off track. Something has garnered our attention, has grabbed our focus, and as a result of that, we find ourselves going in direct opposition to the teaching of God's Word. As a result of this, we see the world is becoming victorious in winning us with its desires and its thoughts that will distract the believers from the life of holiness that God has called us to. But what makes us so susceptible to that? What makes us so easily uh, befalling to these situations? The answer is, I believe, first of all, that we grow weary with our walk with Christ. There are many of us today who are weary of hearing the truth of God's word. We are weary about walking the life of Christ. We, wo- we woke up one day not feeling uh, the excitement that we once did when we uh, met Christ the day of our salvation. And this weariness has caused us to find distracting other things in our lives. Those things that come in and grab our attention, they grab our thoughts because they're more fun. They seem to have more benefit to them than obedience in Christ Jesus. Some of you this morning are finding yourself distracted by the things of this world instead of the truth of God's word. And if that's where you're at this morning, I say, be careful, be warned, you're entering into the danger zone. You are beginning to play games with what the teaching of God's word says is that we will fall into disarray and discontent because we are unhappy with where our Christian life is at. Be careful. But what causes this weariness? The Bible says that what we begin to do is we begin to give away the things of God's word. We begin to put those things away and we begin to pursue uh, the things of this world. 
And that's why Paul addresses us in verse 8. He says, I want to give you something that you need to know and, and walk with every step of the day. And that is something that we must address. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says there's something to address. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now notice what Paul says. He says that we as Christians must never grow weary of the teaching of God's word. If you're like me, I've heard hundreds of sermons since I was a little boy, and a lot of them sound a lot alike. But I must understand that the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is going to challenge and grow me up to be the person that God wants me to be. Now notice what Paul says. He says this is a trustworthy statement. The idea here of this trustworthy statement is that it is faithful and true. And that is why, because of this trustworthy message that Paul tells Titus over and over and over again that we are to be teaching these things. Now, of course, he's addressing Titus, the pastor of the church, but this is something that we as Christians must be doing as well, teaching one another the important truths of God's word. It is that which becomes the blinders from the things that will distract us. You see, just as a horse wears blinders in a horse race to make sure that it doesn't begin to veer to the left or to the right to worry about its competitors, the blinders are there to keep them on the straight and narrow and to run towards the goal. I want you to understand that the solid teaching of God's word are the spiritual blinders that we put on that keep us from the distracting issues of the world. And that's why Paul says over and over again, that everything that we do should be in accord with sound doctrine. Because there are many distracting teachings and many distracting activities in the world around us. And so what are these incredible and important trustworthy statements or sayings that we need to stress or to insist upon? It is the salvation and sanctification of the believer. Paul has just finished up in chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, articulating the importance of us knowing who we were before Christ, knowing what Christ has done for us in the way of salvation, and then what we have been called to do by the gift of the Holy Spirit, which God has so lavishly poured out on us as believers. Now, one thing that we need to understand is that this is not just a suggestion But it is a trustworthy statement, and what that means, as Paul gives five of them in the New Testament, is that this is an endorsed lifestyle by God himself. We will see over and over again, especially as we watch uh, things leading up to the Super Bowl, endorsements by the very players who are playing in the game. They will hold up things like deodorant and bags of chips and all myriad of things, and they will endorse it saying, I, the important one, Me, the popular one, am endorsing this. I give my seal of approval to this product. It has changed my life. Well, let me tell you something. This trustworthy statement that God has given is an endorsement by God himself. If you're looking and wondering 
Where am I to go? How am I to live? What am I supposed to do with my life here on earth? Don't look to the advertisements of the world, but look to the trustworthy statement that God gives. He says, I will give my seal of approval. This is the right way to go. He endorses it. Now notice what Paul says. He says, these are the things that we should stress. But what does that mean? The idea here is that we are settled in our hearts of what we are going to pursue. It's not that we just pursued it when we first came to know Christ. It's not for a certain period of time. But we are to affirm these things constantly as a way of reminder. Sadly, in our world today, we don't remind ourselves and churches fall prey to the idea of not teaching and talking about these things. In fact, churches these days find themselves teaching and talking about everything else except the precepts of God's word. And this is why we put such a focus on preaching the word verse by verse. So that it doesn't become what I want to talk about, but that we deal with the text faithfully. But so many pastors in this world have given up the steady diet of biblical teaching to help people understand how they can have happier lives, positive attitudes, slimmer waistlines, greater romance, better money and time management. This is what fills many of the pulpits in our world today. Now, I would say very quickly that none of that is bad. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But they are secondary because if they do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ, then all of those things are utterly useless. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He says, be careful, pastor, that you don't insist on the wrong things. Be careful, church at Crete or church in Sugar Grove, that you don't become distracted with the fun and and exciting activities of the world and forget the timeless truths of God's word. We are to stress these things and to teach them. But, but what are these things that we are to stress and teach? Write this down in your outlines. The first thing is, is good doctrine. Good doctrine. What do I mean by that? Well, as I've already articulated, if you look at mo- for a moment verses 3 uh, through 8 of chapter 3, you will see ongoing is we have heard the importance of us to reflect God's grace. To be reflectors of the image of Almighty God by living out a life that is full of grace. And we see this over and over again in Paul's writings to Titus. He tells us that we must be those who are eager to do what is good. How can we be eager to do what is good unless we know what good is? How can we know how to be eager to do what is good unless we recognize that in our very natures we are sinful And we are without excuse for that sinfulness. How can we be eager to do what is good in our workplaces and in our schools and in our neighborhoods and family unless we recognize the answer to where we find the good teaching of God's word? It is established by us living out good, healthy doctrine in our lives. And that's why Paul says don't ever stop reminding the people of this important truth. And he does it a couple times. In chapter 2, notice for a, for a moment in verse 11. This is why doctrine is important because the grace of God in verse 11 of chapter 2 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 
If we truly understand salvation, Paul says, he says, then it will teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You will find yourself being distracted and being pulled away from the truth of God's word into those worldly passions and those worldly pleasures if you don't understand and are not reminded over and over again that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. We have to be reminded of that because if we forget that, then we will begin to think that we can live life on our own because Jesus Christ didn't just come to be our savior, to allow grace to be appear, have grace appear to us, but he came as our Lord, as the one who demands that we bow the knee in submission to him. And anyone who recognizes and understands the gift of salvation understands the calling that we have to serve him. As followers of Christ, good doctrine is of great importance, and we, we address it on an ongoing basis. Notice the next thing that he says it says it involves grateful duty. It involves grateful duty. As we address this issue uh, in regards to uh, the truth of Scripture, He says that because we've been saved by grace, notice in verse 3 through 8, after articulating all these truths about what we are to know about grace, he now tells us that we are to devote ourselves, in verse 8, to doing what is good. Now, he defines what that looks like. And I want to do a way of review, if you will, for a moment, that the issues that we are to address are found as we live out our salvation. It involves, first of all, in chapter 1, elders who lead and guide the church biblically and begin to grow the church under the teaching of God's word. It involves saying no to false teachers at the end of chapter 1 and addressing the issues as they lead people away from the truth and shipwreck many a faith as a result of it. It involves chapter 2 where the old men... And the older women are to teach the younger men and the younger women what it means to follow Christ. This is our duty as believers. It is telling slaves and employees to be uh, kind and be submissive and obedient to their earthly masters. He goes on in chapter 3 to say that as we are partakers of this grace then we will be men and women who are subject in chapter 3, verse 1, to rulers and authorities, that we will be obedient of the governing authorities around us. And that when it comes to the men and women around us, notice what he says, that we will slander no one, we'll be ready to do whatever is good, we will be peaceable and considerate and show true humility towards all men. This is where the rubber meets the road, and this is what we must address is the issue of good doctrine that leads to godly direction. And if we forget the good doctrine, my friends, we won't have any idea of where we are to go. We'll be lost, and as a result of that, we will miss out on the grace and blessing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important to live this way, to have good doctrine and grateful duty as a part of our lives? The reasons are given, again, as a way of review. Notice what verse 9 says of chapter 1. 
We do this so that we will be able to encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 4, so that no one, we do this so that no one will malign the word of God. He goes on in verse 8, so that no one will have anything bad to say about us as followers of Christ. In verse 10, he goes on and he says, so that we will make the gospel attractive to others. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 14, which we'll deal with next week, so that we as people will learn to devote ourselves to doing what is good in order that we may provide for the daily necessities of others and not live unproductive lives. What Paul has been trying to articulate to us over and over again is the importance of grace in our salvation, but living out that grace in a life that desires to serve God, not just so that we receive glory and honor. That's not the issue. The issue is that God would receive glory and honor and that people would find the life in Christ attractive. And this is what we're called to do. So these are the issues that we must address. Now notice there's another issue and that is that which we should avoid. The issue that we should avoid. He's told us what we need to address. Now he deals with the issue of avoid. Now notice what he says in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies. And this word literally means to steer clear from something, which our English translation makes that abundantly clear, to avoid it. Well, verse 8 speaks that uh, we need to speak and uh, address the things that are important to the Christian life as there are things that are profitable and useless. On the flip side, there are things that are worthless and unprofitable. And what are they? Paul addresses four things that will only distract will only lead the believer to ungodliness and idleness in Christ. This word was meant to have a settled understanding, to stay above the fray, this idea of avoid. It involves certain conversations and certain activities. But what are they? Paul gives four of them. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, and quarrels about the law. There are the four. Now, were those issues that the island of Crete was dealing with within the churches? Commentaries seem to say uh, that this is just a general admonition to stay away from them because they had plagued all the other churches, it seems, under Paul's ministry. And so he says, I want you to avoid them. Now, I want to break them down into two thoughts. First of all, Paul says, I want you to avoid them because they are foolish teachings. They're foolish teachings. As Paul addresses this issue of foolish teachings, he uses that word in the NIV, avoid foolish, and then he goes on to controversies. That word foolish is translated from the Greek word moros. It is where we get the word moron from. I love when Greek spells that out for us. I like that word. Paul says, stay away, Christians, from moronic conversations with others. This word moros was a phrase that spoke of stupidity, And speaking without a lack of knowledge. Paul wanted Christians to stay away from dumb fights and arguments. And he speaks of how this foolishness is seen. He speaks first of all of controversies. The idea here is of philosophical inquiries. In layman's terms, these were speculations. 
Recently, I was at a mall, and I was in a Christian bookstore, and I was just dumbfounded by the amount of books that are written by people under the banner of Christian publishing that have nothing to do with God's word but the speculations of man. I picked up a book, and I may offend some of you because maybe this is a book that you've read, uh, but I had a book, I was looking at the section that said Heaven and Hell, and there had to be three or four books of people who have said that they've been either to heaven or hell. One of them said 23 minutes in hell. And if he has a biblical understanding of what hell is like, he would have never spent 23 minutes there because he would have been annihilated the first second that he was there. But a whole book written on the idea of a man who has spent time in hell and lived to tell about it. Speculations. Oh, they make for good reading, but they are speculations. I picked up another book on the issue of hell uh, by a, a charismatic author who said that he had found where hell was located, that it was under the Dead Sea. And he said, if we just began to bore under the Dead Sea far enough, we would find the abode of the devil. I said, well, I don't know where you got that. And he goes on and he talks about the volcanic activity that is under the Dead Sea and all of that. And I tell you, again, it makes for good writing, but it's speculation. How does he know where hell is? Maybe he talked to the guy that had been there. I'm not sure. These are worthless speculations. Now, in Paul's days, they weren't exactly like that. We do live in different cultures. In those days, he says, Beware of men who enjoy the concoctions of men instead of the commands of God. You see, what they would begin to do is they would use uh, the Jewish rabbinical writings called the Talmud, which is, in essence, a commentary on Holy Scripture, and then within those writings that were written usually between the uh, Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament, there would be all these speculations on things. In fact, in the Talmud, it speaks about uh, when Ruth uh, is leaving uh, the area of Moab with Naomi. And you remember the story, Naomi's taking her two daughter-in-laws with her. And Ruth uh, goes and says, my God will be your God and my people, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And she goes on with Naomi, but Orpah, the other sister, says, I- I'm not going to go. And she returns. And the Talmud says that when she makes that decision, she is four miles from the area of Moab. And that is symbolic to the four children that Orpah had that would fall prey to the, uh, to the ways of the world. And that Orpah would have four children, the final one being Goliath from Gath. And that Goliath would one day, because of this thing, that the, uh, the idea would be taking place that uh, Ruth's descendant, David, would one day fight Orpah's descendant, Goliath. Where do you get that? Speculation. It makes for good stories. But here's the problem. It's one thing to speculate about something, but what the people were doing in the days of Paul's writing to Crete was they were taking those things, and that was what was being proclaimed in the churches. Instead of dealing with Holy Scripture, they were elevating these writings and these speculations to that of the Holy Word. He goes on and he says that it involved genealogies. 
Now, what Paul isn't talking about is the beginning writings of Matthew and the portions of the Old Testament where it speaks of begetting so-and-so. So-and-so begat so-and-so. Yes, those are genealogies. But what is taking place is that in Paul's days, again, people would create fanciful stories about the genealogies. And instead of just understanding and knowing who begat who for the sake of knowing the descendants, especially of the lineage of Christ, what they would begin to articulate was that there were stories within stories. There were uh, hidden meanings and metaphors, a part of the names and a part of the descendants that were in the genealogical chart. And as a result of that, they would teach these notions that, again, would transcend the authority of Scripture. This is true today. We had an individual within our church that, that as elders, I had to finally tell someone, I never would want to do this, but I finally told them if they hold to this doctrine, that it's probably best that they not be at the church. Because their understanding was, is they had to find their genealogical ancestry because they believed that all Christians could move themselves back to uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this gentleman who, who was a part of our church said, I, I know that where my descendants are at. And what it began to mean was, is he said, the reason why I know this is because I was born in an Anglo-Saxon family. And I says, what about everybody else? And he says, if they weren't a part of the Anglo-Saxon family, they're not a part of the family of God. And I said, do you know that your, pre- your preacher is a non-Anglo-Saxon? You know, my, my heritage mostly does not come from uh, Europe at all. It comes from other places. And he looked at me and he says, well, that's between you and God. Worthless genealogies that can plague the hearts and minds of people. He goes on and he says that these genealogies would move into debates surrounding the law. What they would do is they would take the Jewish law found in the rabbinical writings like the Talmud and the Haggadah and they would dispute things. They would dispute whether or not the angels celebrated the Sabbath or not. Who cares? They would ask what kind of bread they use for the Passover in heaven. Who knows? And again, who cares? If it wasn't important to God to record it in the Holy Scriptures, then we shouldn't have to worry about it and try to work ourselves into knots about worthless disputes about the law. We do this a lot. We do this a lot where Scripture is silent. We work ourselves up into a lather on whether or not it's right to go see movies, whether or not it's all right to have a glass of wine, whether or not it's okay to have a TV in your house, whether or not it's okay to have your kids in public, private, or homeschool. And we have these disputes that say, God is on my side if I follow these ways. And on every one of those issues, the scripture finds itself silent. And we must be careful not to fall prey to the teachings of the law that are of nonsense. As a result of this, notice what the text says. It says that these lead to quarrels and arguments. They lead to strife. Now Paul says this about many other places. Write these passages down for the sake of time. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Again, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, and 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 18. 
Now he says we're to avoid these quarrels. Why are we to avoid these quarrels? Because they are fruitless teaching. They will accomplish nothing. He goes on and he says they are unprofitable and useless. They are an absolute waste of time. Nowhere in any of these discussions do we talk about the salvation that God has given. They're fruitless. They will do nothing more than stir up trouble within the church. They're about as good as the old wives' tale of when you have a cold, you feed it. Where Does that do any good? No, it's an old wives' tale. And many of these things did nothing good. Even though they sounded good, they did nothing to fix the issues at hand. I love what Spurgeon says. It's a long quote, but I want you to stick with it. Spurgeon says that because our days are few, they are better off spent in doing what is good than in disputing over matters of minor importance. Discussions of subjects of no practical importance. We as Christians suffer much from petty wars over minute points and unimportant questions. Questions where scripture finds itself silent upon the mysteries which belong to God alone, upon prophecies of doubtless or doubtful interpretation are all foolish, and we as wise men and women should avoid them. Our business is neither to ask nor answer foolish questions, but to avoid them altogether. And if we observe what the Scripture says, we shall find ourselves far too occupied with the profitable business of the gospel than to take much interest in unworthy, contentious, and needless striving. Beware of falling prey to dumb discussions because it will lead to nothing but division. And that's where Paul leads us to the next one and my last point is where the church is divided. Where the church is divided. What a danger that that can be. And Paul addresses it. He says that when the church is divided, it has now fallen prey to the worthless arguments and the teachings. And as a result of that, we lose our testimony for the Lord. If we are divided, why would anybody want to come and be a part of us? If we are divided, why would anybody see any good? If we are divided, how can we go about as a church who is eager to do what is good if we can't even agree on what that good is? Oh, the danger that comes. We need to know the root of division. Where does it come from? Scripture speaks of two roots. First of all, the issue of sin. The reason why we're divided is because of the issue of sin. We learn about this division from our ancestors in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Instead of following truth, they become distracted. And as they're being distracted, the devil is speaking to them with flowery and wonderful words of what they will be like if they disobey and turn their backs on God. And so they do it. And it will only take us one generation to see that the fall from our relationship with God under grace, what happens to our other relationships. You see, when we divide ourselves apart from God, we will become divided with one another. And we see that with their children of Cain and Abel. It's because of this that God hates all division. I want you to turn in for a moment to the book of Proverbs. Turn to the book of Proverbs. It speaks much to this issue of division. And it's amazing how much God does hate this issue of division in the life of believers. 
amongst brothers. In Proverbs chapter 6, and we'll go through a couple passages, so I'll move quickly. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, he says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceive, or sorry, devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissensions among brothers. He hates it. Turn to Proverbs 10 for a moment, Proverbs 10, 12. This is what he says. Hatred stirs up dissension. But love covers all wrongs. Turn to Proverbs 16.28. Proverbs 16.28. Speaking of this issue of dissensions and divisions, Proverbs 16.28 says, A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends. We need to understand that our sin makes us so vulnerable to the issues of dissensions and divisions within the church. And we must avoid them with all of who we are. Because if it involves us as Christians, it will no doubt involve itself in the life of the church. But it comes from one other place, not just sin, but selfishness. Turn for a moment, keep your hand in the book of Proverbs if you're there, and turn very quickly to the book of James. James tells us why there's divisions, why there's quarreling. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And he says this, what causes fights And quarrels among you. Don't they come from your desire, that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Here's the reason why the church becomes divided it becomes divided almost all the time in this way. One person or a group of people say that what I want is more important than what the unity of the church is calling for. And so I'm going to stick with my idea. I'm going to stick with my thoughts. And it's out of selfishness that my issues and my thoughts and my uh, desires, my idle notions and speculations are more important than the sound doctrine and the sound teaching of the church. And so as a result of that, many do this because they want to be a teacher. Many want to do it because they want their voices to be heard. And all it does is create issues within the church. Proverbs 28, 25 says it's an issue of greed. Proverbs 29, 22 says it's an issue of unresolved anger. Oh, we should be very careful, my friends, to not allow a divisive spirit to grow in our hearts. This is the sobering thought. All of us are susceptible to such division. In fact, I heard just this last week of a prominent church. Don't ask me about it to come up and tell you about it. It's a prominent church within the area that lost a couple hundred members because they've divided in a Sunday school class over the issue of universal health care. What are we doing? As important as universal or non-universal health care is in the United States, it has no place to divide the people of God. And yet this garbage does every day. Be careful. Be careful that your own thoughts and your own desires or your own political views don't become a divisive factor within the church. 
Stay away from them. He says, avoid them. Now notice he goes on, and I need to finish up here. He says that if we want to deal with the root of division, then we need to understand our response to division. How do we respond if someone comes up to us? Well, Paul tells us a couple ways. I want to list four of them for you and close our time. Number one, we need to be on the careful uh, activity of watching out for division. Always watching out for division. Turn in your Bibles very quickly to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, verse 17 through 18. As Paul closes out this great letter, he says the following. In Romans 16, 17, and 18, he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have received. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but they are serving their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. He says, stay away from them. The idea there of watching means to observe with great intensity, to examine, to scrutinize. This doesn't mean to be legalistic or judgmental, but to have your eyes open and to beware that sometimes we as selfish people are going to elevate our own thoughts and desires over that of the church. And he says, have your eyes open to those who long to instigate quarrels, and fights by concocting stupid arguments about nothing. This isn't a place where we need to disagree on. Oh, there are places where we may need to disagree. There are places on important truths that we might even have to separate from one another. But beware of people who just like to see people get fired up. My brother, my older brother, had a friend who loved to egg my younger brother and I on And he would just sit there and watch us fight. And he thought it was great sport to watch two younger kids fight. And he would tell lies and and he would say things about each other. And we would get mad at one another. And we finally caught on that what we were doing was we were being, because of our naive nature of who we were, we were falling prey to his instigations. There are people within the church that are that way. They just like to see a good fight. They love to see people get angry. He goes on and he says in Titus chapter 3 that as we watch out for division, we are to warn a divisive person twice. We're to warn them twice. What are we to do with those who are guilty of division? We're to warn them on two occasions. The word warn there is the word nuthesia, and it means to instruct. It's probably a little harsher in our uh, NIV translations than it should be. Uh, because what it's really used for is where we see it where it's in its other uses is Ephesians 6.4. And Ephesians 6.4 says that a father is to instruct his children in the way of the Lord. A father isn't to do that harshly. He is to do that lovingly. He is to care for him. And this caring love has to happen on two occasions. Where he loves them and instructs them in regards to the way of error. This is done through encouragement. This is done through reproof. It is seen best in, let me just read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. When people are being divisive, don't just ignore them right away, but stop them and say what you're doing is only causing trouble. Stop it. 
It's of no good. It's of no use. You're just working everybody up into a lather. Stop doing it. And that is to happen on two occasions. When he doesn't stop, then we are to withdraw from fellowship from him. It says, have nothing to do with him. It is of no use to debate someone who is hell-bent on seeing things only from their own perspective. This withdrawal is to say to the church, we will not be a place of division, but we will be a place of unity. Again, this is to be done to protect the church and to give the offender warning that his sinful lifestyle will not be condoned. And finally, it involves the reason why we do this. Notice what verse 11 says. We do this so that, because we can be sure that after two warnings that such a man is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. What that means is that while it may seem harsh that we would uh, ask a, someone to not be a part of our fellowship, we do this because he proves to be divisive, not by another's words, but because of his defiance to the loving discipline of the church. He has proven himself to be self-condemned. Oh, how we must address these issues of Scripture. Be careful, you who are distracted, before it's too late. Beware, you who are divisive, because God will protect his church. What is causing your distraction this morning? It may be a myriad of things. But today is the day where we confess those things and give them to God and follow him with our whole heart. What's causing you to allow divisions to take place through your use of words or actions within the church? Confess them this morning. It is these warnings that remind us of the grace of God that we can receive because God is a God of grace. Let's confess these sins to him and give them to him so that we'll find hope and forgiveness in our time of need. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, use these words to ignite our hearts, to do an examination, to take our spiritual temperature. Father, that we would be out of the danger of being distracted because our eyes are on you and you alone. Father, protect us because there are many distractions in this world that keep us from the truth of your sound doctrine. Lord, I also pray that you would remain, uh, allow us to remain united as a church, that we would not fall to division. Lord, that we would ask and lovingly admonish those who bring division up in the church, that we would show them the error of their ways so that the church's unity will be protected And so that our message and our testimony will remain attractive to a divided world that we seek to see you safe. But Lord, we need to do work in our own hearts. There's housekeeping that needs to take place with our own thoughts and desires. Lord, take away the pride and the selfishness that makes us think that we can live life on our own or makes us think that our way is the best way. And let us, just as we read this morning, be like Jesus who made himself a servant, who served you and you alone by giving up his desires, by giving up his needs for the sake of others. We love you and thank you for your word. We thank you for this service. Lord, now lead us into a time of fellowship and a time to gather together in the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace so that you'll be brought glory through everything that we say and do. 
Lead us forth from this place. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.